0: I want to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one, to Psalm 146. If you don't have a Bible, there are some at the back you can borrow. If you don't own a Bible, please feel free to take one of those as our gift to you. If you have been a regular at Sunrise, you know that we've been walking through the book of Psalms. This is the conclusion of that series. Um, Next week, I will begin a series of messages on our mission and vision as we go into the fall. But today, we will conclude uh, this series in the Psalms uh, by looking at Psalm 146. Just over a year and a half ago, just before the world locked down because of COVID, I had the privilege of traveling to India. Many of you know that. I spent a couple of weeks traveling around North India, uh, meeting with church planters and visiting churches to encourage God's work there to see what God is doing. It was a marvelous time. And uh, when I'm that... Portion of my uh, travels ended. I had the opportunity to to make a stop in uh, in Turkey to visit friends there, and I had a marvelous time over the course of several days visiting. They toured me around a little bit. I explored their city and a neighboring city uh, with them. Uh, many of you will know that Turkey is a Muslim country, uh, but it used to be centuries ago. It used to be a real center for the Christian Church, and so there, uh, even though uh, it is no longer, uh, the, the church is, is not very visible there. There is still evidence from days gone by when it was, including the uh, number of church buildings that we saw, that we visited. And I recall going uh, to one of those buildings. It had been turned into a museum. And we got there, and there is something, you know, God doesn't live in buildings, but there is something rich about sacred space, about... Uh, buildings that are beautiful aesthetically, buildings that are acoustically uh, marvelous. And I, uh, as I was there, imagined God's people singing. And in fact, the one place we visited, the one museum, we were the only three in the building. And so I walked to the center of that church building and, and I looked up at this beautiful dome ceiling and I, be, I, I sang the doxology. Doxology. Holy Ghost. It was a neat experience to sing that as a prayer over this nation, to sing that with hopes that one day there would be countless women and men from across that nation who would once again fill buildings such as that and lift their voices in praise of God. The psalm that we are going to look at this morning, the psalm with which we are concluding this series, is a call to worship, to praise God, to praise the Lord. This series I entitled Praying with God's People. Uh, we've been walking through uh, a number of psalms for about four or five months. And a few reminders before we turn to Psalm 146 this morning. The book of Psalms is a collection of prayers. This is the prayer book of God's people. has been the prayer book for God's people throughout the centuries. This was the prayer book for Israel. This was the prayer book for Jesus. These psalms have been sung and prayed by God's people for centuries. As such, there is something very unique about the Psalms. Whereas most Scripture we open up and God speaks to us, the Psalms are unique in that they are answering speech. They, that God speaks first and His people respond. The Psalms give us voice. They teach us to pray certainly not saying that God doesn't speak to us through the psalms, but the psalms are answering speech. Eugene Peterson describes prayer, the psalms this way, as tools. Tools not for doing or getting, but for being and becoming. And he contends that the psalms are the best tools available. He writes, at the center of the whole enterprise of being human, prayers are the primary technology. Prayers are tools that God uses to work His will in our bodies and souls. Prayers are tools that we use to collaborate in His work with us. Prayer is a tool. The Psalms are tools. A thing that works in us. Through prayer we relate to God. Through prayer we connect with God. Through prayer we express what we are feeling and thinking and experiencing in life to God and we are brought into deeper intimacy with the Lord. Now, as I said, though there are certainly things we can learn about and be reminded of as we read the Psalms, the Psalms are not, they are not primarily or foundationally about giving us information. They are about teaching us to engage more deeply, more authentically in relationship with God. My hope is that through this series you've been inspired. Not just to read the Psalms, because the Psalms in our day is a largely ignored book. But not only to read them, but to use the Psalms. To use these tools in your relationship with God that you would grow in intimacy as you learn to pray the Psalms. Now I wrestled for a bit as I thought about how best to conclude this series of messages over the last few weeks. I've been wrestling with what to do. And I had a number of different ideas, but God led me, I think, to conclude this way. Uh, Obviously, uh, preaching through the book of Psalms is different than preaching through most books, at least as I've done it, because we haven't started at Psalm 1 and worked our way to the end like we do in most books. Uh, The book of Psalms doesn't require that, and we certainly, well, certainly, I, I decided not to do that, not to take the next three years. And so uh, how would, how, how, what would be the best way, an appropriate way, a good way, to conclude? And so I came to the decision to conclude with Psalm 146. Psalm 146 is not the final prayer in the book of Psalms, but it is one of the final group the final collection of prayers. Psalms oh, Psalm 146 through Psalm 150 are a collection of psalms that uh, hang together. They, all five of them, begin and end with the word hallelujah, translated in our English versions, uh, in most cases at least, praise the Lord. Literally, praise Yahweh, hallelujah. They are bracketed by that word, that call to praise the Lord. The church father, Jerome, describes the psalms as a large house. And whereas Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are the entrance, the entry into that house, Psalms 146 to 150 are the the, the capstone, the keystone, the the, the final piece. As we walk through this book of prayers, we come here to these five uh, that end the book with a resounding note of worship, of praise. Tremper Longman writes, Turning to the final five psalms, we are struck by the recurrent call to praise the Lord. These five psalms form a marvelous doxological conclusion of the Psalter. And so we're going to look at the first of those five, Psalm 146. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, my soul. I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. When their spirit departs, they return to the ground on that very day, their plans come to nothing. Blessed are those who help, whose help is the Lord, sorry, whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and everything in them. He remains faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. But He frustrates the ways of the wicked. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. In the time we have together this morning, I want to ask three questions of the text together with you. First, what are we called to do? Second, what are we warned not to do? And third, uh, what should inspire us to obey or to heed uh, these words, the words that we encounter in this prayer? So first, uh, what are we called to do? Second, what are we warned not to do? And third, what should inspire us or move us to obedience? So first, what are we called to do? Our psalm begins and ends, with, as I already said, with the word hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Praise Yahweh. This summons, the summons to praise the Lord is followed immediately with the psalmist uh, speaking to himself. We've already encountered this kind of thing. He he says, praise the Lord, my soul. He speaks to himself. We we encountered this uh, self-talk in Psalms 42 and 43, which functioned together originally as one single prayer. A number of weeks back. Do you remember in Psalm 42 and 43, three times there is a refrain repeated. Three times where the psalmist speaks to himself. He he addresses himself. Uh, There we encountered these words. Why, my soul, are you downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Three times the psalmist says that to himself. We all have inner dialogue. We all have... What is called self-talk and it's wise to listen to ourselves. it's it's wise to pay attention what am i feeling what, what am i thinking what's going on in my heart but we must not only listen to ourselves as we see here again we need to talk to ourselves because not all of our inner talk not all of our self-talk is is true not all of it is good we, we can beat ourselves up and say, oh, God could never love you, or, or your sin is too dark, or it's too big. There, there are all kinds of lies that we are tempted to believe. Sometimes we do believe and we speak to ourselves. And so we need to pay attention to what we're thinking, but we also need to speak to ourselves. Like the psalmist, who in Psalm 42 and 43 said three times, put your hope in God, put your hope in God, put your hope in God. He tells himself what he needs to. To hear, he tells himself what he needs to do to put his hope in God. Well, here in Psalm 146, we again encounter this self-talk. After first summoning all who will hear, praise the Lord. He says, praise the Lord, my soul. He speaks to himself. He calls himself to do what he needs to do. He tells himself to worship God, to praise the Lord. And he follows that up with a declaration, a commitment, a promise. He goes on and says, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. So first this call to all who will hear, praise the Lord. And then he speaks to himself, praise the Lord my soul. And then this promise, this commitment, I will praise the Lord all my life. I will sing praise to my God as long as I live. Some of you may be familiar with Isaac Watts' hymn, I'll praise my maker while I've breath." It was inspired by this psalm. The psalmist is saying, as long as I'm breathing, till his dying day, he is committed. That's his aim. It's his desire to praise the Lord. It is central to his life. Charles Spurgeon writes of uh, of this uh, experience he had with a man on his deathbed, a man named John Gainway. And, And here's what John said as he was nearing the end of his life, he said, come, help me with praises. Let everything that hath being help me to praise God. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Praise is now my life work and I shall be engaged in this sweet work now and forever. Bring the Bible, turn to David's Psalms and let us sing a psalm of praise. Come, let us lift our voices in the praises of the Most High. I will sing with you as long as my breath doth last and when I have none, I shall do it better. Praise the Lord. We we are exhorted, we are called, we are challenged to praise the Lord. And then we listen as the psalmist exhorts himself, praise the Lord, my soul. And and then we hear the psalmist make this, this declaration, this commitment, I will praise the Lord as long as I have breath. My life will be centered on glorifying, on worshiping the Lord. That's what we're called to do. What are we warned not to do? Well, what comes next seems strange, at least at first glance. We've been just exhorted to worship the Lord. We have heard the psalmist address himself, exhorting himself to do exactly that, to worship the Lord. And we've heard him make this commitment that he will worship the Lord uh, with every breath he has. That he's committed to do that as long as he is living. And then in in verse 3, the psalmist writes this. Do not put your trust in princes. That, that seems a little unrelated, doesn't it? Kind of changes the tone. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. What? Where, where did that come from? What does that have to do with worship? What does that have to do with what's going on here, this exhortation to worship? to Praise the Lord. Well, it's actually quite relevant to what's going on here if we pause and think. Just stay with me. The psalmist here in verse 3 is highlighting what is often true and what is always tempting for us. Namely, to put our trust, to put our hope, to put our faith in princes. Now you go, well, we don't really have princes. I mean, there's, we have a couple princes, I guess, as a Commonwealth country, but they're more decorated, decoration, I think, right? So don't put your trust, your faith, your hope in princes. What does that mean? I, Here's what Derek Kidner asserts regarding that term princes. here. The modern equivalent is the influential. So don't get caught up in princes. Think uh, the movers and shakers, those with power, those who are influential, political leaders, perhaps celebrities with a loud voice, a big platform, media personalities, uh, social media influencers. I find that notion that there are people whose whole job is to influence other people kind of strange. But I guess companies pay them to because they have a large following or something, I haven't researched this but, but they just they're, they're social media influencers, that's their job. They're important ones who, who try and influence others. That, that's the modern equivalent of princes. Do not put your hope. do not put your trust in influential ones, in the important ones. Here's our reality, it is so easy and it is so tempting to look on the horizontal plane for help, to look horizontally for salvation, if you will, for answers to our problems, rather than to look to God. Now there's lots of factors that can lead to that, but, but one of the obvious ones is that God is unseen, He's invisible to our eyes, but we look around and we see on the news or elsewhere, we see people... Uh, in positions of power, people exercising power and influence. And it's tempting to look to them for solutions to our problems. It's tempting to look to them for salvation, though we wouldn't say that. It's so tempting to look horizontally, to put our trust in leaders, political leaders, influential people, people with power. James Montgomery Boyce writes this, We we trust politicians thinking that the president or Congress or mayor or some other highly placed persons will be able to solve our problems, but they can't even solve their own. We we trust science or education or anything else to be our ultimate Savior. We, We do not actually trust God and worship Him. The psalmist puts his finger on the problem. He continues, and he asserts why putting our trust, our faith, our hope in people, in princes, in influential ones, in the important ones, is foolish. already read verse 3, but listen to it again. Do not put your trust in princes, in human beings who cannot save. Who cannot save human beings, important people, influential people, people who have power, people who appear to be in positions... To bring about solutions are, according to the psalmist, unable to save. They cannot do what we look to them to do. They cannot fix our problems. They cannot solve what's broken. They cannot make all things right. They cannot save. In fact, the psalmist goes on, verse 4, he says, when their spirits departs, they return to the ground. On that very day, their plans come to nothing. Sobering reality, is it not? That every Person of power, every social media influencer, every politician, every person who looks important and that we are tempted to look to, to save, to give answers, to fix things. Every one of them is like every one of us, terminally, terminal. They are dying. They're in the process of dying. Their, their days will come to an end. No matter who a person is, no matter what power they appear to have, no matter what position they currently occupy, no matter the influence they may exercise today, they are mere mortals. They are dying. Their days are numbered, and there will come a day where they breathe their last and are put in the ground and will disappear from the scene, and their plans will come to nothing. It's actually... a, a a play on words here in the Hebrew. The word for man and the word for dirt is the same word. Adam. Dirt to dirt. Dust to dust. That is the end for all. And so the psalmist says, don't put your your hope, don't put your trust, don't put your faith in those who are dying like you. Those who cannot save. The fact that we find ourselves in the midst of two elections right now seems to make these words perhaps particularly relevant. Do not put your trust in princes. Do not put your trust in politicians, the movers, the shakers, the power brokers, the influencers. Instead, the psalmist tells us, blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob whose hope is in the Lord their God. We are not to trust in human leaders, the important people. Rather, we are to look to God. God is our help. God is the one in whom we are to put our hope, our trust, our faith. brings us to our third question. What should inspire us to obey this, to heed these words of the psalmist, these exhortations? On on what basis should we look to the Lord, to put our hope in the Lord. I just read it, but I want to read it again. I didn't draw your attention to something. Verse 5 here, we encounter another beatitude, a blessed are statement. It's actually the last one in the book of Psalms. We encounter the first blessed statement. Way back in Psalm 1, as we walked into our study of this book, blessed uh, there, blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. There, uh, blessedness, the, the, the life of joy and delight, the life that we all desire, is found in walking in God's ways, in being rightly related to God, in surrendering to God, in walking in the way of righteousness, to go back to Psalm 1. The, the way of blessedness is the way of surrender. It, it is the way of looking to the Lord, of putting our hope in the Lord, looking to Him as our help, trusting Him, putting our faith in Him. Here the psalmist says, Blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. Blessed. Do you remember what that means? It, it, it means happy, but it's, it's deeper than that. It, it's fortunate, are you? Or as one German theologian puts it, you lucky bums, you want to have that said of you, the blessed, the blessed life, the life where people would go, oh, you lucky bums. That life is for those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. We, we all desire that experience, the, the blessedness, the, the goodness, the, the fortunateness, the, the delight of life in all its fullness, and the psalmist says that life is found, is received, is experienced by all those who look to God for their help, who put their hope in him, who put their trust in him, whose faith is in Yahweh in verses six to nine we 're confronted with reason after reason after reason, why that is a supremely logical thing to do. He begins by saying that well we put our Our hope, our faith in God, our trust in God. We look to God as our help because He is the creator of all things. He is the creator of everything that exists, every person that exists. He he created you, He created me. He stands above and outside of creation as the, the one who is truly awesome and mighty and beyond our comprehension and description. Not only that, but He is described as the one who remains faithful forever. The Lord can be counted on. There's no election promises and then wandering away from those. No, God is faithful forever, remains faithful. He is creator of all things, He is entirely faithful. And then we read on. Verse 7 He upholds the cause of the oppressed. He. He gives food to the hungry. He sets prisoners free. He gives sight to the blind. He lifts up those who are bowed down. He watches over the foreigner. He sustains the fatherless and the widow. Those who are defenseless. He comes to their defense. All of these things are true of God. We see here the character of God being fleshed out. And not only do we hear it fleshed out here in this psalm, but... This may have twigged something in your minds because this psalm is influenced by Isaiah 61. A text that Jesus quotes when Jesus comes and begins His ministry. Saying that He has come to proclaim the good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives. This is the character of God. You want to know what God is like? We are invited to look at Jesus, the full representation of what God is like. God in His love and in His compassion and sent His Son Jesus for the purpose of redeeming us. Of being our help. Of bringing salvation. That's the God we are called to praise. That's the God in whom we are to put our hope, our trust, our faith. And we read on verse 8, the Lord loves the righteous. Now that might cause some of us to squirm because we recognize, well, I'm not very righteous. But, but I want us to understand what this means. The Lord loves the righteous. This is not saying the Lord loves those who manage to clean themselves up and stay on the straight and narrow. The Lord loves those who are moral. That, that's not the point. To be righteous means to be rightly related to God. It includes obedience, but it's not, that's not the, the, the heart of it here. To be rightly related to God means that when we sin, we recognize our deep need for grace and mercy. We come to the Father in confession and repentance, and we receive His grace, and we strive to obey then in response to His love and His mercy. It's always a response to what He's done, and He is the one that gifts us with His righteousness. He forgives us. He clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. And God loves the righteous, those who are rightly related with Him through faith. I want to speak for a moment to any who are here this morning online or in this building who don't yet know Jesus, who have never put their faith in the God revealed in Scripture. Christianity is not a self-help, self-improvement kind of thing. Christianity is about recognizing our brokenness, our rebellion, our sin, our deep inability, our utter inability to fix what ails us. See, we do need help. We do need salvation. Our problem is that that we look to things horizontally. We look to other people or other things for that salvation. We look to other people for that help. And the truth is that, that no one can save but God. And the invitation that we find in Scripture is to come to God. To come to Jesus, God's Son, sent to live the life that you and I were called to live. Jesus came and He committed Himself completely to the Father. Walked in a life of perfect obedience. And yet He was arrested and tried and nailed to a cross as a political enemy of Rome. And He died as a rebel bearing the penalty that we deserve because all of us have rebelled against God. And on the cross, Jesus absorbed the penalty that you and I deserve, that everyone deserves. And and the Bible tells us that when we put our faith in Jesus, we are washed, we are cleansed, we are forgiven, we we are made new, we become new creatures. Not only is the slate washed clean, but but we're actually filled up, we're declared uh, credited with Christ's obedience, with Christ's righteousness, so we are Forgiven and declared righteous, we are made into new creations filled with the Spirit of God and now for the first time in our lives we are free to grow in obedience. We can learn to live in a way that is consistent with who we already are in Jesus. And so if you have never put your faith in Jesus, maybe you've never heard the good news, the good news is simply this. You need salvation. You need help. And in Jesus, it's offered to you. You need... Need to merely cry out to Him, to agree with Him, confess your sin, turn from it, and put your hope in Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus, put your faith in Jesus, because only Jesus can save. The third question that we are wrestling with right now is, why should we be inspired to obey, to heed these words of the psalmists called to worship? that as long as he has breath, he will praise the Lord. We should be inspired by the beauty and the majesty and the glory of God's goodness and His love and His greatness, His faithfulness, His compassion, His love. The Lord reigns forever, for all generations, the psalmist says. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Therefore, praise the Lord. See, when we catch a glimpse of who God is, when we see the glory of His character as one who is compassionate, one who has stepped into history and suffered in our place out of love for us, to redeem us, to bring the help, to be the help that we need to to save. When we see that, when we catch a glimpse, we will be moved to worship. We will be moved to praise Him. We will see His faithfulness. We will see that in Him we can put our hope, we can put our trust, we can put our faith, and we will be moved to worship. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. In conclusion, let me say a few things. This book of prayers leads us through all kinds of terrain. If you've been with us over the last five months, you know that we have explored and prayed a variety of kinds of psalms. We have gone through the ups and the downs of life, through, through delight and despair, through confession of sin and declarations of commitment. We've encountered all kinds of prayers in all kinds of circumstances in life which mirror the experiences we have. But it ends here, it begins to end here with these last five Psalms, of which Psalm 146 is a part of it, with a call to worship, with a call to praise the Lord. I had the privilege of studying under J.I. Packer. Some of you perhaps have heard of him, world renowned evangelical theologian, author of a classic book, Knowing God. Perhaps some of you have read it. He passed away last July at the age of 93. I learned a great deal in his classes. From the lectures he gave, from the books that I had to read, from the papers I had to write. But the thing that I remember most, the thing that stands out the most, at first it irritated me, I'll be honest, confession time. Every class. Every class. I I, I thought this would just happen the first class, but I soon learned that he, he meant every class. We would show up to study, to hear Him, and He would have us all stand and sing the doxology. I'll never forget that. Because He said, learning about God, seeing who God is, it's, it's all aimed at this. It's all aimed at doxology. It's all aimed at giving Him glory. It's all aimed at worshiping Him, praising Him. Here as the Psalter draws towards its end, it leads us to doxology. It leads us to worship, to praise the Lord. No matter what you face, no matter what challenges or difficulties you are walking through, you and I and all who hear this are called to faith to put our hope in God, in the Lord. I'm called, you called, to put our faith in the Lord, to trust Him, to hope in Him, to see that He and He alone is our help, to see that He and He alone saves. And that seeing that, seeing His great love, His great compassion, His great sacrifice, to seeing His great salvation would move us to be a people whose hearts erupt, burst forth with praise, Rejoicing in God. Rejoicing and delighting in Christ. Lifting our voices as long as we have breath. Hallelujah. 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 Amen.